When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And are you saying that there's evidence of collusion? Because everybody's trying to convert wishful thinking into hard evidence, and they haven't been able to do that. That's beside the point. He was seeking the information. He was seeking the damaging information. That's why he had the meeting. The more he's willing to forgive and forget Putin, the more suspicion. And I think it's going to dog his presidency until he breaks his cycle. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who proposed cooperating with Russia on preventing Russian cyber attacks against us, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So picture this scene. It's June 2016, a few weeks before Donald Trump officially becomes the Republican nominee for president. We're in a conference room high in Trump Tower overlooking Fifth Avenue. There's lots of glass, gold, golf trophies everywhere. Hanging on the walls are Donald Trump's favorite magazine covers, some of which are actual magazine covers. The men are in dark suits and ties worn below the crotch. Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, sit in a conference room with a Russian lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya. Why are they meeting with her? According to several sources who spoke to the New York Times, it's because she offered them dirt on Hillary Clinton. And what did Ms. Veselnitskaya want in exchange for this dirt? She wanted the lifting of the Magnitsky Act, a sanctions law passed in 2012 that directly affected the powerful people she worked for, Russian oligarchs and government officials. Until now, it was possible, barely possible, but possible, to believe that the whole Trump-Russia scandal might just be a cover-up without a crime. There was no solid evidence of collusion, no proof of a treasonous transaction at its heart. We still don't have proof of a conspiracy. But this meeting is more than just a little suspicious. It points to behavior that was, at the very least, utterly and deeply wrong. Two members of Trump's family and his top campaign official responded to a hostile powers proffer of stolen data that could help them win the election, not with a call to the FBI, but with an invitation to meet them and negotiate. I'll be back to speak to Ann Applebaum about the latest in the Russia connection right after we do the tweets. Putin and I discussed forming an impenetrable cybersecurity unit so that election hacking and many other negative things would be guarded and safe. Questions were asked about why the CIA and FBI had to ask the DNC 13 times for their server and were rejected. 
Still don't have it. Sanctions were not discussed at my meeting with President Putin. Nothing will be done until the Ukrainian and Syrian problems are solved. The fact that President Putin and I discussed a cybersecurity unit doesn't mean I think it can happen. It can't, but a ceasefire can and did. Everyone here is talking about why John Podesta refused to give the DNC server to the FBI and the CIA. Disgraceful. Ann Applebaum will be joining me in a minute. But before that, the president is just back from the G20 summit. And you may have seen his statements, but perhaps you didn't see all the statements by the other world leaders. There was one issue that it just seemed none of them could shake. And to keep all the nations of Europe united behind a common dream of peace, I welcome all of you. But before we start, I wish to say how how stupid, how careless is John Podesta. We must come together as a global community and act decisively, unlike John Podesta, when he did not turn over the DNC servers immediately to the FBI. A unified Europe means uh, having great pride, not like the risotto recipe that John Podesta shared in his email uh, is uh, very bad. E dall'altra parte che la crisi e queste conseguenze. Les risques internationaux ont rarement été aussi critiques. Uh, the, the, the French people uh, support these bold steps forward to protect our environment and our uh, people. Uh, also, uh, <laughs> why was John Podesta's uh, password just uh, password? <laughs> you need a, a stronger uh, password than uh, that. Today's sketch was written and performed by Steve Waltine and Kate James. I'd like to welcome back to the program Anne Applebaum. She's a columnist for The Washington Post and books including Gulag and Iron Curtain and the forthcoming Red Famine about Stalin's war in Ukraine. Right, Anne? That's correct. Um, so... Let me just uh, do a little bit of a flashback here. A year ago, last summer, 2016, you were on this program for the first time raising a fuss about Russian intervention in Western elections, which you said we were likely to experience here. And it was right at the same time as the DNC hack 
and more was going on than you even knew about at the time. But one thing we just found out about this weekend in the New York Times story was this extraordinary meeting with Donald Trump's son, his top campaign officials, Paul Manafort, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and they met with this Russian lawyer who apparently had promised them dirt on Hillary Clinton. Um, indeed, yes. I, I, this this is not a meeting that I knew about last summer when I could see that there was not just had been a Russian intervention in the um, in the sense of hacking emails from the Clinton campaign, but also that they were using a Russian style strategy in their social media, and that Trump was repeating Russian narratives that were coming from Sputnik. I mean, it was a very for me very strange campaign because it looked the whole time like something you would see in Ukraine and not in the United States. But turning to the today's news or this week's news, I actually think this story is the real turning point. We've had hints of it before, but a lot of things are now coming becoming clearer for me. The person who the, the Trump campaign people were meeting with, uh, Natasha Veselnitskaya, was known in the United States as somebody who was lobbying against something called the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act, I mean, it's, a, it's fairly obscure probably for most listeners, it was a it was a very small piece of legislation that was really the result of a, a one man's campaign. But Bill Browder, who we sh- I should say we've had on this show talking about the Magnitsky Act and and the efforts to re- repeal it. And are you saying, Anne, that that you think that the the Russians hate the Magnitsky Act? It's like at the top of their agenda. Okay. And are so you why saying- do the Russians hate the Magnitsky? The Magnitsky Act was a kind of was a was a sanctioning of specific people. It was unusual because usually when we've done sanctions historically, they've been, I don't know, against industries or against the exports of one country, something like that. The Magnitsky Act was a new kind of sanctioning, and it was championed by Bill Browder, whose lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, died in a Russian prison. And the sanctions were focused on specific people. If my memory serves, it was 44 people. And they're government officials and and top oligarchs, right? They're people who've, in theory, benefited. Exactly, who were directly involved in the death of Sergei Magnitsky. And Browder staged this many multi-year campaign, and he persuaded Congress to pass an act which specifically sanctioned them. So the woman who was meeting um, Manafort and Kushner and Trump Jr. was somebody who's day job, at least, most of what she was doing was lobbying against the Magnitsky Act. She was involved in a a kind of NGO, sort of pseudo-NGO maybe, but some kind of NGO that was lobbying against it. Um, when, the, when the act was passed, the, the Russian government, in retaliation, banned U.S. adoptions of Russian children. Right. Don't ask me why they chose that particular thing, but that's what they chose as a as retaliation. And she was then involved in an organization that was to do with adoption, pro-adoption of children. And that was, how, that was why that subject came up in Don Jr.'s description of it. But the Magnitsky Act was something that the Russian elite really hated. And they really hated it because it wasn't just... Because you have to understand what the Russian elite is. It's not just... These aren't people who think in terms of national interest. They don't think in terms of what's good for Russia. They don't think in terms of what's good for Russians. These are people who are interested in their personal fortunes, and they use the state to make money, and then they uh, launder that money, they take it abroad, and they send their children and wives abroad, and they mostly live abroad. So the Magnitsky Act was a direct challenge to that model of Russian official life, and they really, really hated it, and they've hated it the whole time, and they particularly hated it when we used a version of that in the sanctions that we imply, applied after the invasion of Ukraine. 
Uh, it was also, once again, these were personal sanctions. They were directed at specific people. Companies, too, right? There's a banned li- there's a sanctions list, which your company, bid Russian banks and businesses that we can't do business with. There were a few lists. There were a few companies on the list. Mostly they were chosen for their proximity to Putin. They're thought to be companies in which he has a personal interest. Right. So this lawyer, Veselnitskaya, I'm, I'm not pronouncing her name right, but the, the one who had the meeting in Trump Tower, her agenda is to get the Magnitsky Act repealed so these Russian oligarchs can, can buy apartments in New York again and, and travel back and forth. Yes, and so yes. But, but don't underestimate how important this is to them and why it annoys them so much. This is hits directly at them personally. You know, if it was a boycott of, I don't know, Russian industry or something, they wouldn't mind so much, because that's just ordinary Russians suffer. They yeah. really, really <laughs> hated this. So it sounds to me like the deal was, we'll help you in the election if you agree to lift these sanctions afterwards. And that, to me, in a way, is much more logical and much more, it's kind of makes more sense than some kind of Putin, you know, some general thing about messing up American democracy or about harming Hillary Clinton. I mean, all that's probably factors into it. But this actually is something that would have been of personal interest to a lot of people in power is to reverse this, these sanctions. And if they thought they had even a shot at getting the U.S. president to agree to that, they would do a lot for it. So, but, but now hold, hold their, on a their minute motive there. Kind of swims yeah. into into clarity. Like now, I see their motive a lot better than I did before. But but if this was a deal, I mean, what you're what you're alleging here is is high treason. I mean, if these people made a deal with a with a effectively a re- representative of the Russian government, where the Russians would help swing the election in exchange for the removal of sanctions, I mean, that is a real conspiracy. To betray the country. That that is a real conspiracy, and I do not know whether that's what happened. Um, it seems clear that, and I mean, Don Trump Jr. has said this. I mean, it was clear that that was what was on offer. That she was offering to give them dirt, as it's now been said, on Hillary Clinton. And what did she want? You know, what could someone like that have wanted in exchange? There's only one thing. It would have been sanctions, and that's why Don then started talking about adoption. But the adoption thing is a red herring. The adoption was Putin's response to our sanctions. You know, he, he, he started talking about adoption when actually the real subject is sanctions. I mean, the trouble, of course, is that none of the people who were in that meeting are likely to tell us exactly what was happening. And, of course, it's also possible that it ended, ambigu- you know, ambiguously, in which no decision was made or, you know, they, were, they didn't want to put anything in writing or in paper or even orally to make clear that that was the deal. But certainly a person like that, there would have been only one reason why she would be doing that, and that was why. And could she speak, do you think, for the Russian government, for Putin? She doesn't need to speak for the Russian government. Mm -hmm. She's speaking for that group of people. She's speaking for the 44 people. And would she have been, do you think, possibly offering actual material from the DNC hack to the campaign? I mean, do you think the dirt she was suggesting she could could give was that 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 i don't know i mean we know that um the following day was it that day or the following day that was when trump started tweeting about hillary clinton's server remember this was it was exactly around the same time and so maybe that maybe that's what she hinted at maybe she maybe she and, and you know maybe she had it and maybe she didn't so before we go too far with this theory can you imagine a innocent explanation of meeting with this woman i mean is this is this the kind of meeting that if there were no nefarious purpose that the top officials of 
the Trump campaign would take? Would you meet with this Russian lawyer? No, there's no reason to meet with her at all. I mean, this is I mean, a woman who's who's there, she's done two things that seem to be notable. One is that she defended. She's been was part of the defense of somebody accused of money laundering in the United States. So why would that be of interest? And the other thing is her involvement in the Magnitsky case. So unless they had a particular interest in the Magnitsky case, which they wouldn't have, unless it was, it's a you know hardly could have been a major campaign issue. Then no, there's no reason to meet with her. So your old theory, and when we talked last summer, was the Russians engage in this hacking basically to mess up the West. Right to, to undermine, to damage faith in democracy, to you know hurt support for NATO, to damage the EU, and the, you you assumed what they were doing in the U.S. or might do in the U.S. would be comparable to what they had done in Eastern European elections, and obviously have tried to do in Western European elections, which is not necessarily to try to obtain a particular result, but just kind of uh, damage the legitimacy of the election. Do you now think it's something much more specific and was directed to try to produce the result of electing Donald Trump? So it could have easily still been both. One of the things about that we we know about the Russian state is there are different groups inside it, actually like, not unlike the U.S., in fact. So there are different groups inside it that have different motives. And, you know, there there was you know, certainly in addition to whatever she was offering, the sort of dirt that she was offering, there was clearly a social media campaign that was organized, you know, in, you know, using bots in a, in a, in a Russian style that looked to me like that had, may have had a Russian role as well. That, that may never be possible to prove. So there may have been other things that they were doing and their overall kind of geopolitical goal may have been, as I described last summer and as, and that would make sense because that's what they do in lots of other places. So that's not, um, that would be in line with you know, along, you know, many other actions. But this makes me think that in addition to that, there was also a group of people with a very specific thing they wanted and they thought they could get. Um, and, you know, we don't know what, you know, whether that was ever signed off on. But that, but that would then explain, you know, why it was so persistent and why they kept working at it and why, you know, why they put so much effort into the, particularly the hacking piece of it. So right before this story broke over the weekend in, in the New York Times, Trump met with Putin in Hamburg at the G20 meeting for two hours. So this adds a little context to that because Trump surely knew this meeting took place and knew and knows that the Russians executed the hack and leaked the information on his behalf to try to help him in the election. Putin knows that, yet they have to go through some kind of ritual of accusation and denial. There have been different accounts of this, of what Trump actually did. The, uh, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said that Trump accepted Putin's denial that they were involved in this. Uh, the various American accounts don't, don't, don't include that. What do you think happened in that meeting? <laughs> I mean, well, the meeting, of course, was designed so that we wouldn't find out too much what happened about it because there were only four people in the room. Normally, in a meeting like that, there would be lots of aides and advisors and people taking notes and so on. Um, and this one was, it was just Trump, Tillerson, Lavrov, and Putin, which is very, very unusual. And a, and a couple of translators who know a lot more than they're ever going to tell us, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, but but if you read very carefully now what what Tillerson said, what others have said, and what Lavrov said, it doesn't sound to me like the explanations are that far apart as, as they initially seem they might be. It sounds like Trump said something, you know, well, I, and it's something along the lines of, well, I have to get this out of the way, so... 
Um, I need to say that. And, of course, as you've just said, if he's somebody who knows there was Russian involvement in hacking the campaign, it's obviously not an issue he's going to push very hard. And then Putin said, no, I didn't do it, or words to that effect. Um, And then they agreed to move on. Um, And Tillerson's version of that was, well, it's, of course, remains a big, you know, major problem for our relationship. And Lavrov said, no, Trump just accepted the denial and moved on. I mean, but there there isn't really that, you know, the, the difference is really Tillerson's opinion rather than anything else. I mean, I think it's clear that they, Trump felt obligated to bring it up. He was not enthusiastic about it. Putin denied it. They agreed to disagree and change the subject. Pure ritual in any case, and Trump will now go back to what he clearly believes and when he's being honest on Twitter says, which is it, he doesn't believe the Russians did it. Yeah, or he doesn't want to admit the Russians did it, but yes. I actually, in a way, it's interesting that he brought it up at all, given how many times, including two days earlier in Warsaw, he said, well, maybe they did it or maybe some other people did it. So the fact that he brought it up at all indicates some kind of guilt or some feeling of obligation or some sense that he had to do it. Maybe it was Tillerson who said he had to do it. I don't know. But, you know, he, he either, you know, he either knows it's happened and so doesn't want to talk about it you know, or simply wants to wish the whole subject away. But this is such a crazy ritualistic conversation. They then go on to discuss cybersecurity, and Trump comes <laughs> out of the meeting and tweets that they're going to work together on cybersecurity, which is like the fox and the chickens working together to prevent the eating of chickens. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and we're going to work on ISIS to prevent, with ISIS to prevent terrorism, you know, <laughs> and we're going to work with North Korea to prevent nuclear proliferation. I mean, it was it was an absurd thing to say. Very oddly, actually, he took it back a few hours later. He tweeted something today along the effect of, well, I said we were going to work together with on cybersecurity, but it, I didn't say that it was going to work or something like that. So I think even even he acknowledged that it was an absurd thing to say. No, I mean, there were, the, the meeting was... Um, as I said, it was odd for a number of reasons. The, the way it was set up was odd. The fact that it went on for a long time was odd. But the outcomes of it were pretty narrow. I mean, normally one wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, people, leaders meet for the first time, and there's not necessarily any much that comes out of them. But this was exceptionally narrow. And really, almost everything that was said, when you looked at it closely, wound up being on Russian terms. So, as you say, this point about cybersecurity, which was ridiculous, then there was a point about, um, well, we're going to have a more a more open discussion of Ukraine, something like that, you know, very neutral without no mention of the Russian invasion of Ukraine by anybody. And then a um, a ceasefire in Syria, which I think... Another ceasefire another in Syria. Another ceasefire in this Syria. Week's and, you know, yeah. John Kerry, I don't know, he negotiated dozens of them, or maybe I'm exaggerating, but he, he spent a long time trying to negotiate ceasefires in Syria to no avail. And so there was no... There was no evidence that, um, that that really had much significance. The other thing that was said that was important was, I believe it was Tillerson who said something along the lines of, we both agreed not to meddle in one another's politics. In other words, the U.S. will not speak anymore about violations of human rights in Russia. You know, the West will not talk about arrests of journalists in Russia. The, the United States will not you know, will not mention, as the United States has been doing really for 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and of course long before that. Um, but it sounded like that they've also agreed, all right, we're not going to mention any of that anymore. That's, you know, old ways of thinking. And that was something that would have been really, really important to Putin, kind of, you know, acknowledgement that we're just going to 
pretend that we're all geopolitical objects on a game of risk competing against one another, and we're not going to talk about internal politics. And that's, that would be a break from U.S. policy for, of, I don't know, the last several decades. But when they mutter about how terrible the, the press is to them, this is a place where they really agree. I mean, Putin and, and Trump are really on the same page and, and with the, the Polish president, for that matter, uh, in their hostility to the free press and probably along with that, the independent judiciary and other institutions of constitutional democracy. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the way that Trump talks about the press abroad, particularly with authoritarian leaders or would-be authoritarian leaders who dislike the press and who have tried to undermine the press in their own countries is appalling and unprecedented. We've never had a U.S. president who does that, and I'm sure we've had plenty of U.S. presidents who don't like the press, but somehow they've managed to live with it. Um, And they haven't, you know, particularly, as I said, the idea of speaking about it that way in Poland, where which is a, which is a flourishing democracy, but where there is right now a government that's trying to undermine the press in various ways, and in Russia, where journalists are murdered um, and seemingly murdered by the state or agents of the state, to, to joke about it with them is off the charts um, unprecedented. Where does this leave the the U.S.-Russian relationship? I mean, it just seems so bizarre at the moment. You have this real affinity between. Trump and Putin, based partly on what you were just talking about, the the outrageous attacks on on the press, the disrespect for institutions of liberal democracy. You may have a conspiracy, which we were talking about earlier in the show, but you also have the kind of political impossibility or at least extreme difficulty of working together because because everyone – in our country, mistrust Trump on this subject, and he actually has very little latitude to act, uh, act. I mean, Congress is going to renew Russian sanctions by an overwhelming vote, presumably over his objection, because it doesn't want to give him any room to give ground to Putin. You know, it's an odd relationship, and what struck me also as odd about it, looking at them uh, together in Hamburg, is that neither one of them in that meeting is really acting on behalf of his nation. So what, was, what did Putin want out of that meeting? As I said, he wanted these minor concessions. He also wanted to, to beam back home the impression that he is at the center of world events. He is the most important meeting that Trump had in Hamburg. He is the one calling the shots. He even beat Trump at his silly game about handshakes. You know, it was somehow it was Trump who held out his hand Uh, First, and therefore the photograph of Putin and Trump together showed Trump seemingly reaching out to Putin. (laughs) This is like the fourth grade game of like you put out the hand and the other person won't leave you. Look, it's a fourth grade game and Putin won. And that, I mean, I was actually watching the Russian (laughs) press during the meeting. I was watching television. I was looking at Russian media. And that was the picture that everybody had immediately within a few minutes on, on their home pages. And that was the commentary. That was the commentary also on Russian television. They were saying, "Look, this is a very long meeting. This shows how important our president is. You know, it's a Trump who came to Putin." And, and they really, you know, that was the that was the line that was that was going home. Is that Putin is a central figure, and you know, he's it, you know, this is a way, of course, of giving him extra legitimacy, um, and particularly at a moment when the economy is rocky and lots of people do doubt doubt his legitimacy. So, you know, this was a perfect staged moment for him. You know, what was it for Trump? For Trump, he wasn't there representing the American people or what Americans want or even what, you know, several generations of American diplomats and and officials, you know, have tried to have tried to achieve with Russia. He was there 
for his own purposes. One of them was, as we've discussed, to get this issue out of the way, this kind of hacking issue, so that he can say, well, I asked Putin about it. He said no. And that's, of course, a personal issue for Trump. Um, And the other issue seems to have been this weird desire for Putin's admiration or, you know, for Trump also, this feeling of being in a club of big strong men and, you know, being photographed next to them. There's some kind of it's some kind of psychological need he has. I mean, I'm, I didn't know him well enough to even pretend to understand what it is. But he he seemed to be there, and what he seemed to want from the meeting was something personal. I mean, I don't I don't know what his broader political goals were, or rather, what 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 the American people's broader political goals were. There 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 weren't really any at stake. It was mostly a meeting that was about him personally and for 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 Putin exactly the same. And Putin is a kind of role model for him, though, because it's it's. The president as owner of the country. president as owner of a country. And look, Putin is somebody who used money to get political power and then used political power to make more money. In fact, money way beyond anything Trump can dream of. And that seems to be a mode of being that Trump admires. It's certainly what he's done and what he's trying to do. He, he used his money and, his, and sort of celebrity to become president. And now as president... He is not as successfully or as blatantly or as um, lucratively as, as Putin, but he is using his office to make money. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think he'll make quite a lot of money as a result of being president. But there is this just incredibly disturbing growing resemblance between the practice of politics in, in both countries. I mean, I turned on Fox News briefly last night and saw their reaction to this story about Don Jr.'s meeting with the with the Russian lawyer and they were immediately just attacking it as of course fake news and and I just thought it's Fox News is turning into RT. I mean they're not even reporting the news anymore. Their their primary function is defense of the president. There is an argument that says that RT learned its trade from Fox News. It what you know the the the, the Russian producers were watching Fox News and they which, which, by the way, didn't used to be as bad as it is now. Um, but maybe, um, maybe now the influence is going the other way. But they, they, they copied that style, and that's you know that's how they learned how to do what they do. So the traffic goes in both directions. I think the traffic now goes in both directions. I mean, I think the the the, the watching one another and learning how to do this kind of propaganda in this in this modern age. Um, I think the traffic goes both ways in electioneering and learning how to use social media. The Russians have made a great sort of, it's, it's their area of expertise, how to manipulate social media, how to use fake stories, how to spread them using bots, um, how, to, how to use troll farms and troll factories. Um, you know, they really were cutting edge on a lot of this. And now I think people in the U.S. are catching up. I've been speaking to the writer, Ann Applebaum. Ann, thanks for coming back to the show. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. Just one more thing before we go. Do you think Trump cares dead? Two people I know have strong opinions on that subject. They're the Slate writers Jordan Weissman and Jim Newell. You can hear them on their new podcast, Trump Care Tracker. Check out Trump Care Tracker to stay on top of all things healthcare related. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or at slate.com slash trumpcare. That's slate.com slash trumpcare. Also, be sure to follow Trumpcast on Twitter. We're at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. Today's show is produced by Jason DeLeon. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>